Ben Uri, as you know, our central focus is on the Jewish and immigrant contribution to British visual culture since 1900. And we always focus on the artists. Um, but of course, the artist is only part of the story because the artist also happens to be a human being and regularly a parent. And the issue is, how do the children see? Um, we're just playing with it with again. How do the children see uh, life being um, being the children of, of artists and immigrant artists or refugee artists, of which we were just having a previous conversation about how different that is. So I'd like to kick off by first of all introducing our panel this evening. Uh, Marcia Ribeiro, on, on my left, uh, is a daughter of Lancelot Ribeiro. And if you happen to look behind, hopefully, if you happen to look behind um, uh, Marcia, you'll see a painting of King Lear, um, which is, ah, and yes, you can, I think, um, which is by her late father, Lancelot Ribeiro. I should also add that um, this is quite uh, timely because there's going to be a, a major show at Borough House in Hampstead, which opening quite soon, next next week, I think. Next week, yes. Next week. Yeah. Um, so, and there is in the Benjamin Library, a number of books on Ribeiro, and this is uh, one of them, which happened to be of another painting, which you can't see, which is also behind uh, Marcia um, of, of, by Lancelot. On, in the middle is an old friend, or young friend, an old friend, uh, whatever, it's, whatever I say, I'll get it wrong, um, but a good friend of Ben Uri, uh, David Herman, whose uh, late father was uh, the artist Joseph Herman, who I'm sure will be equally known to most of you. Um, this is a book uh, that Ben Uri published some years ago on, on Joseph from Warsaw to, to, to London via Brussels and Glasgow. Uh, period that was relatively unrecorded, um, which is why um, we decided to do it, because when we did our research on Joseph, who was himself an old friend of Benary, we find that he had had over 200 exhibitions in his lifetime. So how on earth did we do something that's uh, different and added, adding to the library of, on the artist? But we found we find a way. Marcia, may I start with you? Ladies first. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit, uh, we've only got an hour. Tell me a little bit about uh, dad, about the background, where you lived, where you came from, and um, and, and a little bit about being a little, a, a young Marsha uh, in that environment. Okay, um, so my, um, so my father, um, my father's family um, was from Goa um, and they, um, they split their time between both Bombay and Goa before um, India got its independence. And um, in terms of my awareness about my family history, um, my father always spoke about his childhood in these two places. Um, I, I was perhaps four or five, I would be crouched besides him. And he always had this sense of nostalgia and this sense of... Um, I guess a, a sense of feeling homesick, um, but it it, um, it was those kind of, those stories that he um, the, the, those tales of childhood really that gave me a sense of where his aesthetic roots were, um, and um, my understanding and this is also from looking at um, his archive of photographs and letters and correspondence and meeting other family was that. Um, 
he uh, um, he was um, he, he 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 basically uh, saw Goa as very. Um, it left its mark, really. It left its um, impressions in terms of how he wanted to depict the landscape. Um, his upbringing and schooling and strict Roman Catholic um, family uh, resulted in images very much like the King Lear that you have here, although that's, of course, that has the literary connotations. But he was very much, he was very keen to bring his identity into his work. Um, so he came to Britain in 1950, um, and I, as a child, would get snippets and fragments of his, of his years here um, before he became a professional artist in 1962. What did he do um, before that? Please? He was sent to Britain to study accountancy of all things, uh, <laughs> something he absolutely hated. Um, and one of the things I discovered as a as a child, um, and it was really looking at some of the letters, how how much that was a struggle for him, um, because he was starting to write poetry, and I found fragments of poems, little diary excerpts, um, and I think it was that creative impulse. Really, you know, he battled against, he rebelled against. The world of accountancy and was drawn and he wants to be a published poet but painting in his case happened by sheer accident as he put it what was the accident um it was a family i believe it was a family friend he talked to me about this so i was perhaps in my teens at this time and he would quite frequently mention the fact that someone had said had tried to persuade him to go hunting and he didn't want to go <laughs> But he agreed to go as far as the hardware store uh, where this where this friend was buying ammunition. Um, and it was there that he stumbled um, upon uh, the Windsor Newton paints, tubes of paints, and saw, I believe he saw, you know, um, hardboard. And that's where he kind of officially started painting. Although in actual fact, he was actually drawing from his school years and experimenting with jewellery design as a teenager. So I don't think it was a sudden, you know, it was it, it was just a sudden. And, and the hunting experience was in? I believe that was in Goa. In Goa, so he'd gone back because he said, he, unless I misunderstood you, he came to London in 1950. Yes. But he actually only really decided to uh, to make this uh, seismic and, you know, Actually, lost to the accountancy <laughs> profession, uh, who I always feel greatly sorry for as a profession, um, to become an artist in 1962. Um, earlier, 1958. 1958. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's all. I mean, that's what he he said professionally that that was that was the starting point. Okay. And um, before we just cover David, um, brothers, sisters. My father. No, so, uh, and you? Oh, um, so yes. So I have a I have an older sister, mm -hmm. um, and my um, on my father's side, his um, his famous half brother was also a well known artist, Francis Souza, um, and he had a sister who was heading towards becoming a concert pianist, but life took her in a different direction. So it was a very um, artistic family. Um, and I, I believe that was probably, you know, that set the environment for him in a sense, because 
I just remember he would talk a lot about all these different artists and musicians and um, painters coming to their house in Bombay. And it was that environment that I think, you know, he obviously it, it, it set the seed for him as well. So. Okay. Begs a hundred questions we can come on to, but uh, let's, uh, David, can you, uh, can you share the same sort of uh, structural background? Sure. Let me start on a very pedantic note, which is that I've never thought of my father either as an immigrant or as an immigrant artist. I've always thought of him both as a refugee and as a refugee artist. And I'm sorry if that sounds both pedantic and nitpicking and possibly even like a hierarchy of suffering or something, but it's not meant to be. Uh, and indeed, curiously, when I think of my father's closest friends among artists, some like Bomberg and Epstein were from immigrant families. Others were refugees like Jan Adler and uh, anyway, um, Martin Bloch and uh, Richard Meidner and many others. So he mixed with immigrants and refugees, but I think always thought of himself as a refugee. And the reason I think that matters is because certain things therefore follow from that, so that his entire family were killed in Warsaw uh, during the Second World War, which meant that there was no home to be homesick for by the end of the war. There was no question of where he might go back to because there was nothing to go back to. And so he stayed in Britain. Um, he came, we well, left Poland in 1938, just to give you a very quick sort of biographical sketch. He left Warsaw in 1938 because it was a very right-wing fascistic anti-Semitic government there. And he uh, went to Belgium initially, and then the Germans invaded Belgium. And so he went to France, and then the Germans invaded France. Mm -hmm. And he managed to get a lift to southwest France and got on a boat, he thought, to New York, uh, but inevitably took him to Liverpool, uh, the New York of the Northwest. And he then went to Glasgow. And, um, and he didn't speak, he spoke about six languages at this point, but none of them, unfortunately, were English. So he was in a library in the Gorbals and met a journalist who spoke French, which was one of my father's six languages. And my father said, do you know anyone who speaks Yiddish in Glasgow? And little did he know, sadly, that your father and grandfather were in Glasgow Yiddish-speaking Jews. But uh, he was directed to something called Benno Scholz, an Estonian sculptor. And, they were, and, and he went round to visit him and they became lifelong friends. And he said, do you by any chance know someone called Janko Adler, who was a Polish, Jewish, Yiddish-speaking artist who my father knew from Poland? And Benno Schott said, yeah, he lives in Glasgow. And they resumed their friendship. So that sort of gives a flavor. He drove my mother crazy in many respects, but in one particular respect, which was nothing to do with him being an artist, but it was to do with him being a refugee. He insisted that every room in the house should have a bed in case someone, stranger or a friend, needed somewhere to stay. And uh, so I think we were the only people I knew who had a, a bed in our living room and just everywhere, uh, including the bedrooms, obviously, but not in the bathrooms. So my mother was very long suffering. And there were various things about him being a refugee that I somehow did not find strange. I didn't find it strange that he would burst into a Yiddish song at lunchtime over the fish fingers and baked beans. 
I didn't find it strange that he had friends who invariably had very thick Central and East European accents. I didn't find it strange that at night I would hear them talking about very strange, obviously places, obviously places to do with tremendous suffering, places called Osvienchen or Treblinka or Woj. And I had no idea. I was reading P.G. Woodhouse and watching Blue Peter. I had no, I, I had no idea what these places were. All I knew was uh, that these were terrible places where terrible things happened to people. And I would say that perhaps that's what I associate with being a refugee that, and, and a refugee artist, because the odd thing was, he wasn't painting any of this. It clearly was at the center of their lives, this group of people, some of whom were artists, photographers, all kinds of but he didn't paint it. What he painted was miners, coal miners. And I thought, well, this is very, very strange. Mm. I mean, you know, parents are mysterious things. And this was just one, one more mystery. And then I went to an exhibition at Benuri. Sorry, this will be my last point, and then I'll shut up. <laughs> I went to an exhibition at Benuri in the early 1980s, 40 years ago in Dean Street, curated by the great late Aggie Cantz. And I saw all these drawings of East European Jews, some of them rabbis, some of them like my grandfather, shoemakers, some of them storytellers, shepherds, not a coal miner in sight. And I thought, here's another mystery. What on, where on earth have these been all my life? I was by then in my mid thirties. Who did these? I, I, knew, well, I knew that he had done them, but they were completely unlike anything else he had done. And so one thing about a refugee father and a refugee artist is that they're full of surprises and very mysterious people. What a, what a, what a, what a, what a little story that is. Again, asking a bunch of questions. Can I ask you also the same question that I asked Marsha? Uh, only child, sister, brothers? Complicated story. My mother had two daughters from her first marriage, so I had two half-sisters. I had uh, only one sister who was of my, from, of my parents, from my parents' marriage, and she died very young. And then they adopted uh, a sister, uh, another daughter, quite soon afterwards. Uh, and um, that's, yes, that's basically the story. I want to come on. I want to just touch on the on the issue of immigrant and refugee because I think it's an extremely interesting point, and it's a point that is not new to Benuri. Um, one of the trade-offs that we that you make when you're trying to invest, commerce, market, or communicate a, a product is how you describe it. And you know, in, in, in marketing, the goals and rules are a keep it short, keep it direct, and keep keep saying it. Uh, and once you kept saying it a hundred times, then start at the beginning and say it another hundred times. And the Jewish and immigrant and refugee contribution, yes, uh, we felt was far too long. Um, and actually, we started off with the immigrant contribution, which included the everybody. But then we got uh, a, 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 a measure of serious um, um, 
representation to say that, well, we've forgotten our Jewish roots and everything else. So we put back in the Jewish and immigrant, uh, although the Jewish is obviously part of the immigrant. Um, and maybe it should have been the immigrant and refugee. But it's an interesting, it's a very interesting uh, distinction, which I hadn't realized had the had that emotional effect in terms of being as a family, whether you're the child of immigrants or the child of refugees. Um, mainly because I never thought about it, but that's something I'm getting from this thing. You you were not the child of a refugee artist. Yeah. Um, how much was the and, and, and your parents were well established, mm. you know. Did you feel that you were from an immigrant family? Was what were you were you conscious of either inside the household or at school or you did rest of your afternoon? Um it's an interesting question actually, and I was dwelling on this ahead of this event um because I it, it wasn't in my mind, you know, I, I wasn't aware of being part of an immigrant family. My as you said, my um, parents were well settled by the time I was born. Um, and it, but it, it was in the sense that I had a, you know, I had a kind of awareness of my, of our roots from their ties to homeland. You know, I was very conscious of that. And I was, um, I was increasingly conscious as well of how important my dad's Indian heritage was was to him and it, it was just even objects in our studio I mean he had brought back artifacts from from Goa um the the statuary from from churches he picked up here and there um and but you know I mean I think it was also a reflection of his broad um interests in that he was he was someone who spoke widely about Indian culture you know, across the subcontinent, and it very much informed his uh, his art as well. You know, he didn't paint a particular type. That's your question. Yeah. What what language? <laughs> what language did your parents speak? Um, English. Uh, but my mum was fluent in Portuguese and Konkani, which is the the language of of Goa. Um, and they spoke they they spoke a mix of Portuguese, Konkani, and English at home. On my father's side, it was English mainly. Um, it was an India English, it was a, you know, not the first language, but certainly not the second language. Given, well, given, given Britain's um, uh, great <laughs> contribution to, to that part of the world. So. Well, um, I mean, in a sense, I, I, I'm not completely sure. I mean, I think my my father's father had more, um, more, more going, more of the going culture within him. And, perhaps could speak some, some Portuguese. But my father, when I would ask him about what language, what other, other languages do you speak? He would say, I speak a smattering of this, a smattering of Hindi, a smattering of Portuguese, a smattering of Konkani. And, and, but, and what languages were you taught? Yeah. What did you learn? Um, we spoke English at home. And I started to learn Portuguese, partly because I was interested in the, uh, I loved hearing my mom speak Portuguese. So I wanted to increasingly converse with her. So I tried to learn it, um, not very effectively, but I can yeah, I can understand the gist of some conversation. Did we ask you the same question? What language did your parents speak at home? Your father, because could, could your, your, your mother was, was not a refugee. She was a refugee. She was a, she was a refugee from Berlin who from came Berlin, to England right. in 1938. Right. Uh, but they're, they're, they, 
it's hard to imagine two more different kinds of Central European Jewish refugees. My mother came from a very posh family in Berlin, and they, they tend to rather look down on East European Jews, especially the sons of illiterate cobblers from Warsaw. So she, she, yes, she was very posh. She was absolutely not posh, the least posh person I think I have met. Sadly, I never met your father, but certainly my father's the least posh person I, I, I'd ever met. And um, so, yes, so they, so they, spoke, they spoke English uh, at home, uh, but if they didn't want me or my sisters to understand what they were saying, they spoke German. And of course, with, with his friends, he spoke a whole medley of languages. Yeah. Yeah. So mainly Polish, Yiddish, because that surely must be the first um, signal that you are different to your school kids' friends, um, because at home there is one, two, or sometimes three or more languages being spoken you know, uh, around you, when actually then you go to your friend's house and actually it's... it's David, you have no idea. I grew up in rural Suffolk in the middle of... I'm not in a town, but sort of in the middle of nowhere, really. And uh, my friends, when I went for tea, we had Spam, tomatoes, lettuce. Yeah. When they came to my family for lunch or tea, we would have kaka and cholent and zrazi and God knows, frankly. I, I was just mortified constantly. Uh, whereas... So languages was the least bit, really. I mean, they were, as I say, my father did break into Yiddish song. And it was like living in two completely different yeah. worlds because their friends were, the vast majority were non-English speaking refugees from the arts. Yeah. And there was absolutely no one like that among my friend's parents. And this isn't a criticism, it's just an observation. Yeah. And, and, and Martha, the same, same experience in terms of the... Yeah, um, I, I, I think so. Um, I think our house, though, was, it had this open house feel to it. And I think we, you know, we had um, growing up, and I remember, um, you know, I remember this, this was quite different to some of my other school friends and that we would have family from abroad, family from India, from, from who had emigrated across the world, come almost through Belsize Park to, to I meet with us. Did you were living in London? We were living you in Belsize Park Gardens, actually, yeah. You were not uh, rural. No, no, not at all, not at all. Um, and we would have artists coming in and visiting my dad. And I, you know, I was a child, I was running around unaware what their discussions were. Um, and, you know, even just being the child of an artist is, is very different. And you, you, you don't realize, you know, you think it's, your, it's normal, it's your normality when you're growing up. But when you actually say to your school friends and they, they, they ask, what do your parents do? And you say your father's an artist. I would get blank faces in, you know, in return. Well, you're, you're, what does that mean, you know? You're planning your therapy because I had planned the first half an hour to be about the upbringing within, uh, within your whole lives. And then the second half in terms of what it's like to be in the household of an artist. Yeah. Um, today they're called the creative industries. <laughs> um, how much did you, 
Did you see your dad work? Did you talk to your dad about his work? I did, yes. I mean, um, the difference in, in a sense was that my parents separated when I was a baby. So um, it wasn't as if my day to day was, was with my father, but he had a very, it, it just, when I look back, I think of him as being ever present in my, in my childhood um, years. And I, I quite often think about the studio, his working studio that I just would, would be my playground, essentially. It was this one room that we had in this um, in this huge uh, flat in Balsaid Park Gardens, which was just, you know, it was like a, um, a hazardous setting, really, because you can imagine it had, in the centre of the room, just these um, old stretches, old parts of frames, basins of perhaps toxic polyvinyl acetate yeah, and paints. And I loved playing with everything I could get my hands on. Um, so I would be... Putting the yeah, yeah, probably. And I, so I remember these, you know, I remember the light in that room was, was, was remarkable as a child. And I would just be running around the, this mound of his, of his studio with um, paintings against the wall. Um, and so growing up in, in that kind of setting, I mean, it, it, it was wonderful. And I have to say, it, it's left an impression on me in that every time I walk into an artist's studio or I walk into where his paintings are, I find myself almost picking up those smells of, the, of an artist's materials, really. Um, so yeah, it's a very, it's a completely different world. And when that was working, yeah. you know, if, if um, in, a, in, in a more traditional profession, yes, you're sitting behind a desk and you're working away, and if you're then interrupted in the middle of stock for assess, you know, you can be um, either very generous or very snappy. Um, the, the, the process of being an artist, one imagines, because I was not so privileged to really, uh, have your upbringing, uh, is one of great concentration and one of very deliberateness in terms of what you're doing. Um, and I could sort of, how, how was that when you barged in after school or before school or whatever during the holidays and sort of decided to have a run around the studio when he's working? Well, I mean, that, that's the thing in a sense, because as I said, it was um, my um, relationship with him was outside of the kind of day-to-day -day, um, family setup. My parents had separated. So he would almost stop working while I was with him. Was you, may I ask, um, it's, not, it's not inappropriate to ask, what did your dad have a new partner at this stage? Or, or, um, or later was... on, and uh, I think this was probably... Um, when I was about seven, eight, or no, I was younger than that. So he did have a new partner for for a while. And they lived in Chalk Farm, so all very local, and we we loved her. She was she was wonderful to us. But before but um, before that, when your dad was a single parent, yeah. so you so he you, you would then uh, I enter mean, I, the special room. I would remember him coming over, and he I would remember him um, encouraging us to encouraging me certainly um, to paint as well, because I would just be sitting on the floor as well with my own bits of paper and his paints probably just creating a mess. But it, you know, it was something I always loved doing with my father. And I continued to, to do that, even when he moved to Chalk Farm. And then even after that, when he moved to Haverstock Hill in 1980, so 
by that time I was 10, but I continued to always, you know, find that he would encourage me to do that. Um, and when he was, to get back to your question, when he quite often, I would be in a setting in his, in a room in his studio, and there would be a painting on the wall that he was working on. And he would then stop and talk to me and say, you know, almost it was as if it was the thinking process. He would tell me how the dynamic of the painting can change completely just by where you place a moon or a sun or an, you know, or an object that he would be in um, thinking through. Um, and there were other times when he would almost be surprised by the results of what he'd, he'd produced. And I think that was that was always a pleasurable conversation because I, I would respond, I would say how I love the piece and he would just almost go quiet, but I could see the pleasure that he would derive from the product that he produced. Can I can I switch to you, David? What sort of relationship did you have with Dad when he was actually working? Uh, we did not overlap because he started work at four in the morning with every day, birthdays, Christmas. This was another issue between him and my mother. He would, if it was her birthday, you would be up at work at four in the morning, and that would be, you know, if it's Christmas Day, four in the morning. And so by the time I got back from school at 3.45, 4 o'clock, he'd finished the day. Uh, he'd by then done his 12 hours. And, um, but I nevertheless didn't see him much because he would then be having a little rest or listening to music on the radio or something. Or, so I'm looking for a bed in the house. Or looking for a bed. Well, he had his own bed in the studio. He had yeah. a bed in the studio, of course, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which takes me back to the story of these mysterious drawings uh, from the Benuri exhibition in the early 80s, because he always claimed when asked, when people asked him, where did these drawings come from? He said, I just looked under my bed one day in the studio and there they were. Well, of course, this was complete nonsense. And the interesting thing sometimes about bits of nonsense is that they conceal very important truths. In his case, the truth was that when he heard that his family had been killed in Warsaw, he stopped drawing subjects from a Jewish world in Poland and never ever went back and he kept the drawings but never mentioned them to his dealers never mentioned them to anybody biographers nobody nobody knew of their existence as far as i know uh until aggie's exhibition which then and if you look at books about him monographs biographies in the 30 40 years before they're not there, they're not mentioned. And then suddenly this exhibition happens and then people think, well, what, 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 what is this? Where did this all come from? Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, yes, they were under his bed, but the reason why they were under his bed was, was a very different kind of reason. And so let's just continue this, if I may. You obviously must have asked him. No, I, I didn't. Firstly, uh, among many regrets in my life, I, well, the reason I didn't ask him was because I was very aware that I lived on a minefield, that I was treading on, potentially treading on a minefield. I knew, I think I was about seven when my mother told me that my father's family had all been killed. 
She didn't know, and in fact didn't know until her death, that some members of her family were killed in the Minsk ghetto, uh, but uh, not very cousins, not very close. Uh, but she, so she told me that his family had all been killed, and I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with that really. I couldn't think that through at all. But what I did learn was you don't go there. I, I don't know, nobody ever said don't go there. Mm. My father didn't, my mother didn't, but I just learned very, very quickly, common among second generation mm. children, I think. You just, there are certain things you just don't go near. And therefore, no, in answer to your question, I didn't ask because I think I knew. Sure. Know. Once I saw those drawings, I thought, oh yeah, okay. But it's interesting that he, he did these drawings in Glasgow before he left in Greece. Yes. So there is a there's an interesting, I don't I don't I don't know how to articulate it, but there's something there that in your case, your dad had a home, yes, and and, yeah. and his his connection with Goa and, and with Bombay in some ways influenced his subject matter, shall we say. Okay. And in your case, dad's form was to him essentially obliterated. It, it, it just wiped off the face of the earth. And this is after all, we're very close to the 75th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto. So it's uh, it's a poignant moment in time. We were just at a really interesting point in our discussion um, where David had uh, explained that the there was a no-go area in terms of totally understandably in terms of his dad's wanting to draw a line meant meant if I if, if I paraphrase and you'll correct me if I'm in any way misrepresenting it, but wanted to draw a line over this horrendous period where he lost his family and and try to start a new life if you like. Um and therefore as David said earlier on, did not have this connection with his homeland because the, the, the Nazis had destroyed his, everything that was home, if you like. But in Martin's case, it wasn't, in Martin's father's case, it wasn't the situation. And I was just starting to uh, try to find the right uh, line of discussion in terms of what difference that had. David's father was clearly homesick when he was living as a refugee in Glasgow, perhaps with only Jan Kalabler and Benno Schatz as uh, really close comrades, at least who he could communicate easily with because English wasn't his uh, one of his six languages. Um, and he drew these, these series of amazing drawings um, that Benny showed 40 years ago and we showed a number of them 10 years ago in our exhibition. Um, and then when, when he learned of the, the horrendous news, he then drew that line over that period. But in Marsha's case, um, Marsha's father did have homes in terms of Goa, in terms of Bombay and, and how it influenced. Um, and it must be also different as children because there are periods therefore where, as you said, your instinctive, emotional intelligence rather than anything else said that that's a no-go area to discuss and in your case there probably wasn't any no-go areas to discuss no I, I always pestered him to tell me stories and it, stories from 
home usually. Um, so no, it was it was very much part of our DNA, I guess, to talk and, about this. And David, did, did, did whilst you didn't want to obviously talk, let's see, let's see the Poland years, yes. Did you have conversations with Dad about his art, his subject work, his minors? Not really. No, only after his death did I start start to write about his work, start to try and think about his work. Um, one thing that does struck struck me when we were talking earlier uh, before before this event started. Uh, one thing they have in common, these two very unlikely and different people, is that they both painted. Uh, King Lear. Mm. And I've been trying to think about what on earth drew such two very different yeah. non-English people to King Lear. And uh, I've been sort of working away at this. And one thing that strikes me is that both images, please feel free to mm. contradict this and uh, take it whichever way you want, both images strike me because the first work I saw of your father's mm. was at the London Art Fair and it was his King Lear, yes. which I think is just one of the best paintings I've seen. I mean, it's just a fantastic painting. But it does strike me as both literally and in other ways a very dark image. Mm. And certainly my father's version from 1965, though different in many ways, mm. is also extremely dark. Uh, not literally, but in, in many ways. And I just wonder if the reason that drew them both to that particular story is that here is another kind of outsider that spoke yeah. to their state of being in some kind of no man's land or heath or something. Mm. Um, for, with my father's version, the big difference is that my father's version has the fool, which is very important to that yes. painting. Yes. And they're sort of very close in that they're both in the same painting, but they're also very far. And what my father's work is mainly about, I would now say, is in a, to quote it very pretentiously, the great German thinker Walter Benjamin. Mm -hmm. He said, he once wrote, friendship is not the abolition of distance, it is the bringing of distance to life. And I think what my father does in most of his work, whether it's couples, a man and a woman together, a man and a child, um, Lear and the Fool. Mm. It is about the distance between two people who you think are very intimate and close, but actually he brings that distance between them to yeah. life, is what he does. And of course, your father's image, just right behind you, there is no fool, mm. but it nevertheless has a kind of fascinating darkness which I found. Yeah I mean I think that, that word that dark you that you've um, spoken about the darkness of it it actually in the context of what my father was doing at that time in the 1960s so he was producing a, a series of heads most of them were abstract or semi-abstract and most of them were um, um, I guess portrayals of types, you know, um, whether it was a tyrant or a colonialist or um, a tyrannical figure of some sorts. That was his, this was a whole phase that he was doing in, from the early 60s through to the um, late 60s. But oddly enough, um, whenever he drew female figures or couples or a mother, or a mother and child, there was a 
there was almost a beauty about it, the gentleness, a kind of sensuality in those works, in the female form. So I think it was partly how he portrayed these, these, these types. And King Lear um, is the only, um, it's the only painting I found where it's from a Shakespeare play, but I've got one untitled um, oil um, head, which I was looking at with my um, creative director. We both looked at him, we, we thought that's Shakespeare. So I, I think that's partly paying homage to the fact that my father was very, um, you know, he had set out wanting to be a poet. He was he was very well read, you know, he he'd read I don't know how many of Shakespeare's plays. So it's he does he, he you, you see traits of that in, in the collection as well. So so I have two more questions. But David, are you, you, I think you're going to say something. Go ahead. Go ahead. So one is, please tell us what you both do as a profession. Um, so I, right now, um, I actually have lost um, probably uh, four or five years. I've devoted my, my life to being the custodian of my father's legacy um, and, and his life story. So it's um, about curating exhibitions, it's writing his what, family history. What, what, okay, so but, before you get onto that, yeah. I, what was, what profession did you choose as an adult? <laughs> I, um, I, I am an economist by training and I worked in the commodities sector, some commodities. So I, um, I specialize in agricultural and international trade, um, essentially, and worked in that and loved it for many years. Um, so that's where my background is. And then laterally, yes. Uh... Yeah, I mean, before my father passed away, so I, um, I mean, over, over my, over my, um, really from, from quite young, I would help him in various ways with his work, with trying to photograph his work or um, catalogue elements of his work and that became that you know it became an increasing um part of my focus and it was um I think it was it I mean actually it was his passing that really was the you know the catalyst, the catalyst exactly um, but I'm still working at the same time and trying to still so, so within your economist profession. Yeah, I was, and I would be getting the train back and writing about my father's story or thinking about an exhibition I wanted to curate. So let so. me just stop it, because I, I, I <laughs> want to just try and pinpoint various things. Yeah. Um, did your father ever give you reason of encouragement to follow in his footsteps as an artist? Um, he... He gave me encouragement to be creative, um, in the sense that he, he, he guided me as well, and perhaps instruct. Well, he definitely instructed me in terms of how I can try and represent whatever it was I was trying to do, because I was always um, from the, from the from a very early age. I was usually sitting with materials that he bought for me that mirrored what were in in his studio. But I, he, I had a sense that perhaps he discouraged me from being an, thinking of being an artist, probably because of the struggles he had, you know, had to endure. 
And I also had seen how he had struggled to, you know, to promote himself, to get exhibitions. Um, so for me, it was very much about just enjoying the process. Okay, stop. I mean, I've got, I've got follow-up questions. Okay. David, can I ask you the same? Uh, I worked in television for 20 years uh, as an arts and talks and history producer. And then for the last 20 years, I've been involved with various organizations, including this one. And uh, I've also uh, written coming up to 1,200 articles, essays, reviews for different publications. Only 1,200. Nearly 1,200. Nearly 1,200. 1,170, 1170, etc. Ever tempted? Dad ever suggest? Absolutely not. Not in a minute. He was, no. Okay. Uh, and Partly because, well, I think by the time I was eight, I think my father's career became more fraught. That kind of figurative art, and certainly drawing and painting, working men, mining, miners, farm workers, fishermen, that just went way out of fashion in the early mid-1960s and abstract art had taken over, pop art had taken over. And you know, but up from then on it became a real, it became a real struggle. And being a child, I mean, we're talking about the child's point of view. Mm. And being a child, I registered this in a typical child's kind of way. I realized that we no longer had salmon or roast beef. We had sausages and chips. Um, you know, that's how I knew we, that something had changed. We, we, we parents always underestimate the, the shrewdness and the emotional intelligence of our children to, um, to recognize all the things that were going on. The other great issue that falls upon you both that doesn't fall upon me as an individual or as a child is that my father, my parents' legacies are for me and my brother and any other members of the family that still exist. I mean, it's a, it's a closed shop, it's a box, it's a bubble. In both your cases, your father's legacy, your parents, because it takes two, you know, but your father principally mm -hmm. uh, has a legacy that is global. I mean, people, there will be people in, 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 in all over the world who will have a painting or drawing by your father. And therefore, they will look at it and say, oh, yes, that's by Joseph Herman, that's by Rebecca. Actually, have I showed you this bit of So in other words, it's, 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 and with the internet, it is literally global. And being the custodian, how much weight does being the custodian of uh, that legacy and trying to safeguard it, even enhance it? Um, I mean, it's a big addition to anybody's life. Yeah, um, I, um, I mean, I became aware of the, I guess, the weight of responsibility a few months before my father passed. Um, and I, I remember when he wasn't too well, and luckily he, he did recover, but I remember the, there was a moment when I thought, I, I have a responsibility here to share his work with, with, with people. And I had, and there was one, for some reason, there was one painting a bit similar to King Lear, actually. It's a very dark 
painting in, in, in terms of subject matter. It's called The Stricken Monk. But the beauty and the experimentation in that work was, I, I guess, what inspired me. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, I continue to be excited by my father's work. And I, I often had to step back and think, well, am I, am I, you know, I, I know that I've been so close and so kind of um, passionate about arguing for greater recognition for, for his legacy. Um, because I've also been aware that I've got that responsibility. So it, it is immense, but I, you know, I think I'm very fortunate that I've had a number of um, supporters, including the Ben and Marie Gallery and yourselves, um, embracing that that vision that I that I have. So it is, you know, a, uh, there is a long way to go. And I think, you know, we just held some some events in India, which um, my sponsors put on. And it was it was amazing because I saw a kind of, I saw that, as you say, that um, global recognition in the flesh, I guess, you know. So it, it's a very satisfying process, but it's a very arduous journey. That makes sense. Yeah. David? Uh, yes, I am very involved with uh, my father's work, trying to find exhibitions that might happen, trying to uh, get things published, trying to, yes. Uh, and um, again, while being aware that I'm fighting a bit of a losing battle. These are hard times for the, Jew for the Jewish arts, hard times for Jewish museums and archives uh, and libraries and these cultural institutions. And therefore it's a hard time to try and keep alive the memory of a Jewish artist um, for whom his Jewishness was tremendously important. Um, so that, that is something of a struggle. I'm very aware also that it is no coincidence that my father's death more or less coincided in my life with a kind of Jewish turn, becoming more involved in Jewish cultural organizations, writing more about Jewish history and literature, giving talks about Jewish writers and artists, uh, which I had not done before. And, um, Yes, it's, a, it's been a kind of Jewish turn, and I think I partly owe that to my father's memory. I am enormously grateful to you, David, and to the Benori, and to your colleagues, of course, uh, and to a number of Jewish organizations. Um, one other thing, possibly a last thing, is that when my father died, uh, my sister and I inherited various uh, things of his, and the things that mattered most to me were uh, particular paintings and objects, all of which uh, were to do with his Jewish past. Um, a prayer shawl given to him by Yankel Adler, which he had wherever, he always had it in his studio, he always had it wherever he lived. Um, because he was quite itinerant through his life and wherever he, and you know, I look at photos of him from the 1940s and 50s and there's the prayer for um, A painting that Adler gave him uh, of the orphans, uh, two orphans uh, around the time 
both learned of the extinction of their, the murder of their families in, in Poland. And uh, again, that always took pride of place wherever my father was. Uh, a portrait that he painted in 1940, I think, of the Yiddish, Polish Yiddish poet Itzik Munger. Um, and I remember as he was dying, more or less a day or two before he died, uh, he's more or less the last thing he said to me was there's a portrait on the back door of the kitchen. I went into the kitchen, have a look. And there was this bizarre painting of a man with wild eyes and wild hair and a green face. And I later found out the reason it was green was because he had very, he, he painted it in a camp where he and Itzik Munger were both there. They'd known each other in Warsaw and there they were in some camp somewhere in the southeast of England, uh, brief, very briefly. And he had virtually no paints. And so he, green was one of the few colors he had. So he painted this man with this bright green face. Uh, so there were a number of these kind of objects, which I suppose matter apart from living the people more to me than anything else. And, uh, and because they connect me in some way with my father's life and times. You, you raised a subject earlier on, which uh, is a, be the subject of another whole uh, uh, interview, but I, I am going to just touch on it, if I may, because the you 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 accurately stressed how difficult it is for Jewish institutions at this moment in time. Um, the social integration of the Jewish community as a minority community um, has its has many different um, uh, dynamics to it, and one of it is that we can, we sort of take for granted, if you like, what was there, but we were more interested in what's out there now rather than necessarily our cultural heritage. Um, and you, but in your father's case, if we just open it wider, his, I'm, I'm sure that his collecting base is no longer yet dominated by members of the Jewish community. Uh, he's, it's, I mean, far from being an honorary member of the Royal Academy, which is a rare, a rare honor, um, but the, his artworks sell wherever to, to, to collectors of fine art, uh, of the period, of whatever it is, they're not buying Joseph Herman, which they probably did 30 years ago, uh, because he was Jewish, they're buying Joseph Herman because he's one hell of an artist. Um, and I wonder whether uh, in, the, in, in your situation, as also as a, it's a bigger minority community because the Indian community is, is the biggest community. I, I still think it's the biggest community. The Poles maybe maybe fighting it, but, uh, but I think it's still the biggest uh, immigrant community in this country. But do you see your father's work as an Indian artist? I don't. Or, is, or is it, does, does the Indian community see your father's work as an Indian artist? Um, I see, I, I think in a sense that sometimes there's a, um, there's a problem in trying to kind of brand, to, to I guess, categorize um, art, uh, you know, according to ethnicity, and I think he he um, would often say that art has no color. You know, that was an expression I think from a poem that he had started to write. 
Um, and, you know, it's very difficult really to describe my dad as an Indian artist, because if you were to look at some landscapes he did in the 1980s, you'd think it's from the English School of Watercolour Painting. Um, he, there, there was no, you know, art, um, I think given that he would travel extensively and was very um, sensitive to his surroundings and very perceptive and portrayed things as, as he saw it, of course, um he the the, the kind of um, use of color maybe has some link to to his earlier works but he was constantly changing um i think he was very keen to promote recognition of art from the subcontinent but that's different to describing yeah. it as yeah. but the indian art community in the yeah. uk yeah does um which I don't, I don't obviously I don't know well enough at all. Um, but do they cons do they treasure their 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 heroes in whichever uh, capacity? Oh, I think for sure, and I think also back in India as well. I mean, it it even comes down to when we did an event in uh, twenty fourteen talking about my father's um, early life. I could see that it was as if, you know, it was a, a welcome for a going artist coming back home. So yeah, there, there is this kind of identity um, and this connection. Um, yeah. You know. Somebody once said to, uh, said to me 20 years ago when we coined the phrase that Benary would be about art, identity, migration. They said to David, have you any idea how big these pots are? <laughs> and how inter intermixed and how complex they are. And um, and I, I still don't think we know the answer. Mm -hmm. But I do want to thank you both immensely. It's been just wonderful to hear you, to hear your stories and your revelations. And